Are you seeking a better way to accelerate your sales, to scale your business, to live a life with no limits? Accelerate Sales Podcast features global experts who have cracked the code to recurring revenues with proven sales systems and get you on the fast track to scaling. Now let's accelerate your sales with today's episode. Welcome to the Accelerate Sales Podcast, episode number 407. You're going to learn lots, but let me just summarize the value so you continue to listen. One is what measures you should be doing in your business to most importantly improve your lifestyle. The second is delivery margin and why it is so important. The next is how to raise your prices in this increasing wage environment. Uh, I don't need to you know, labor on that. And the last one is how to track time so that everyone uh, enjoys it which is no mean feat. So if you're a first-time listener, welcome. And if you love what you hear, please subscribe. If you're a regular, always love those Apple reviews. Uh, Please take notes, but there's going to be a summary on where you're listening. And also there'll be the um, show notes where we put all the links, everything. And believe me, there's lots in this episode. And also you can get the full transcript if you need that as well. Just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash podcast and just check for episode 407. And before we go into the interview with Marcel, I'd like to talk about two sponsors. One is the Cloud Consultants Collective, peer-to-peer learning group. It's free. It's a Slack group. It's great. You can go to cloudconsultants.com or sorry, cloudconsultantscollective.com, CCC. And the other one is SendSpark. It's a fantastic video platform where you can send personalized video messages to improve your follow-up and close rates. And also it's got great analytics where your team can do certain activities based on those. And best of all, we've got free six months for you. Just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash send spark. So our guest today is uh, quite an exceptional person and is going to give you lots of value. He's the CEO and founder of um, Parakeeto, and the company is dedicated to helping agencies measure and improve their profitability and streaming line in their operations. And he's also a, f- um, a fractional CEO at Goldfront, an award-winning agency in San Fran that has clients like Uber, Slack, Keep, and more. And also he's the head of strategy or a strategic coach for the SaaS Academy platform by Dan Martel, which is the number one coaching program for B2B SaaS businesses in the world. And he loves being a speaker, a podcaster, a consultant, and he really does specialize in the agency profitability. And he's helped hundreds of agencies, but most importantly, he's on here today to help you. So what I'm going to do is hand you over to Mark Pedipus from Parakeeto. Marcel, so fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, look, I know we've had a, a good discussion in the warm-up and, and other areas, and I think this is a topic around you know profitability, measuring it in agencies that is, uh, well, from my experience, very much sought after. But why don't we kick off with uh, who you love to work with first, and then we might find out what are some of their challenges. Yeah. Uh, well, the agencies that we have the most fun working with are typically digital agencies. The common thread across all of them is that they do some kind of website design and development. And then 
lots of other services around that, whether that be more on the creative side, more on the technical side and perfect clients for us tend to have anywhere from 10 to about 50 employees. And what they're really struggling with is figuring out how to measure the performance of their business and answer questions that they're asking themselves every day. Like, are we making money on clients and projects? What kind of work makes us more or less money? Do we need to hire people? If so, when, and does that change if we do or don't close this deal and really trying to figure out how to get data to support those conversations that are primarily gut driven today in their business. Yeah. And, and why did you pick those people as uh, who you love to work with? <laughs> well, there's a whole multitude of reasons, but really it was because I came from that world and experienced that problem myself. And then my original business partner, Jared was running a custom software and website development agency and was struggling with those problems as well. So we just knew that it was something that we had struggled with. We knew that it was a market that was underserved. And what we've come to discover is that um, there are some incredibly brilliant people that we work with, and they tend to be brilliant at the subject matter that they've built a business around and are now in this learning curve of having to learn how to run a business. Um, once they find, they wake up one day and go, oh shit, like I have a, I have a business here. I have to learn how to run it. And so it's really incredible the amount of opportunity that a lot of them have. They're doing such great work for their clients and they're constrained by finances. And when we can remove those constraints, it just has such a tremendous impact. So it's been a lot of fun being able to unlock that area of the business for folks that are just so good at what they do. And this was just a missing piece for them. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, you listening now are probably nodding your head to saying, yes, I've got that challenge because, uh, you know, we now when we ran our own agency or we ran a consulting, a cloud consulting business into the agency world, it was very, very much the case that we saw. I came from a you know Coca-Cola background and it was really uh, all based on the numbers. Like uh, most of our sales directors, you know, I was the director of the business. We all had a finance background or, or fine, you know, I did accounting at university and, and very much know my numbers. And uh, yeah, when we went into that world, I was, it was quite surprised that, well, I wasn't surprised. It was just the fact that, you know, it was like me trying to write a creative brief or me trying to do some of the things that they did versus what I could do. It was just what you're good at, what you, you specialize in. And uh, I think it's, you know, so important. And, and the, access to information. So, you know, there's a lot of great software SaaS out there at the moment. Has it made it easier or harder to access the information to then, um, you know, uh, learn it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, and this is kind of a thesis that we, we actually started as a software company ourselves. And about a year ago, we decided we were going to pivot into being a technology lever leveraged consulting company. And I think that was based on the realization that there's a lot of software in our industry, which is great, but there's not that many solutions. Yes. And what people need is a solution, of course. So it's not that there aren't good time tracking tools or there aren't good project management tools or there aren't good on it. Like there's a lot of amazing software, but it takes some strategy to figure out, well, exactly how should we configure a project or, um, you know, a client or the different tasks or the different subtasks and tags and all these, you know, different objects inside of these tools so that the data that comes out of it is actually useful and helps us answer these core questions. And I find that so many agencies spend so much time on the tools and on the software. And, you know, like I hear this all the time, like we've been through five project management tools in the last five years, or we've switched time tracking tools three times this year. And it's just like, 
this slippery slope of trying to solve this using tools, the underlying problem is really the strategy and, and the fundamental understanding of how to measure things behind it. So I think that there is a great opportunity right now for agencies to more easily than ever get great quality data with really inexpensive, very accessible tools, but there is this knowledge gap. And it is actually, I find very difficult to find clear information about exactly how should we be calculating thing, these things? Exactly how should we be configuring these things? It's really hard to find the answers, which is part of the reason that I've been trying to get on as many shows like this and preaching the gospel as I can, because I found it hard to find these answers when I was doing it. And so that's kind of my whole thesis around our marketing today is let's just try to answer these questions in a, in an available form so that this isn't uh, so cryptic anymore. Like you said, that's why we so take us through that. What, what, you know, you, you, you know they got all the tools and you know they're pulling their hair out because they you know they don't understand what he measures what should i be looking at um tell me where do we start yeah there's really four core things that i think every agency should be aware of and i'm going to start with the one that's the lowest hanging fruit which is some core financial data um, and this is an interesting thing, right? Most people, when they think about measuring profitability or measuring performance in the agency, they immediately think, okay, this is the finance department's responsibility. Yeah. Um, and I think to some extent, there are pieces of it that are the uh, finance team's responsibility, but there is a blessing and a curse about financial data. It's very, very precise, but it's also very expensive and it's very slow. You're usually not seeing it until 15 or 20 days after the month is over. You're looking backwards. And the more complexity you add to that system, if you want to look at client profitability or job or phase or project or task level profitability, that can get very expensive very quickly. And so I want to start with finance uh, because most people are already investing in accounting and bookkeeping and a couple small tweaks can get them a lot of additional visibility. But I want to preface this by saying finance does not have all the answers and any accountant that tells you that you can measure all your critical KPIs using only financial data they're either naive or they're lying to you. So with that said, um, some core things that you should be able to pull off of your profit and loss statement as an agency, of course, you should be able to see how much revenue you're bringing into the business. That is, uh, you know, 101 stuff. If you can't see that, then you probably have a, a really big problem with your current bookkeeping and accounting team. But the next thing that most people- Actually, sorry, just, are, just Marcel, just quickly yeah. on that. Uh, most agencies running uh, cash or accrual in their, uh, <laughs> their bookkeeping. This is a great question. Okay, we're going to go down a little rabbit hole down the side. So most small agencies are running cash-based accounting because they're small. And that makes sense. If you're under a million dollars in revenue, the expense of moving to accrual accounting probably isn't worth it for you. And then what we see is a lot of agencies that have moved to accrual accounting but they're not actually doing accrual accounting. The only difference between their cash books and their accrual books is the accrual books are based on the invoice date, whereas the cash books are based on when the payments are received. But if you want to actually do accrual accounting properly in an agency, it should be based on the rate of revenue earning in the business. Now, if you're doing a lot of recurring work, this isn't typically rocket science. You bill a client at the end of every month or at the beginning of every month, and you earn revenue in a fairly linear fashion throughout that month. But if you're a project-based shop, let's say you're doing a $100,000 HubSpot deployment uh, with a client, you're building a website, you're building their funnel, et cetera, it's going to take you six months and you're earning revenue at kind of different paces throughout that, then you need to have a really clear way of how you figure out what percent complete is this project at the end of every month. So you earn the right amount of revenue. Because if you're not doing that, 
And you might find this uh, if you're running cash books right now in your business and you do a lot of project work where it's like, okay, well, we collected 50% deposit from the client on month one. So it looks like we're wildly profitable on month one. And then months two and three, it looks like we're absolutely like in a dumpster fire. And then, you know, because the, the way that revenue is being spread out in the books is not steady. And so what that actually does is it undermines your ability to get insights from your books on a tighter time horizon. And now really you can only look at it maybe once or twice a year, once all this stuff kind of settles and you're looking at a long enough time horizon for those bumps to kind of play themselves out. So if you are going to do accrual accounting, or if you're currently doing accrual accounting and you have never had a conversation with your accountant about how do we know what percent complete uh, each project is at the end of the month? Huge red flag. You should definitely sit down and talk about your methodology for determining that. I think there's basically four ways to do it. We can dig into those, but that's a super important thing. You should be doing accrual if you're over a million dollars, but you should be doing it based on percent complete. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And we've seen that catch out a lot of people, especially when the tax man knocks on the door, right? They're like, oh, well, I had all this money. I've spent it. And now it's like, well, hang on, that was meant to be like you said, amortized or accrual over time. So uh, yes, a great one. Sorry. So I interrupted. Revenue is the first one. What's next? Yeah. So you got your revenue coming in. Ideally, it's being earned on an accrual basis. And then the thing that most people are missing is actually um, pulling out any pass-through expenses so they can understand their agency gross income or AGI, which is a term that Drew McClellan popularized. Um, but really what that represents is the amount of revenue that the business needs to earn with the deployment of their time and resources. So this is not a huge factor for shops that don't do a lot of outsourcing or don't do a lot of paid advertising, what have you. But if you have a certain amount of your services that require you to pass money through to other vendors, then you want to be stripping that out because it might obfuscate the actual revenue of your business. A, a dramatic example here would be if you ran a Facebook ads agency and you're paying all of the ad spend on behalf of your client, you might have $10 million in quote unquote revenue coming in the door. But if 5 million of that belongs to Facebook, you're running a $5 million business, not a $10 million business. Just yes. like Airbnb does not do hundreds of billions of dollars a year. They do the 15% of those hundreds of billions of dollars worth of transactions that go through their platform that they're taking a cut of. And Visa does 2.75% of all the money that flows through them. The same thing is true for your agency. So it's really important to isolate pass-through expenses, which are basically costs that go on to other vendors that you're not responsible for the profitability of so that you can understand, okay, how much money do we need to earn now with the deployment of our resources internally? And that number is your AGI. So for most of you looking at your PL, that might be your gross margin or gross profit line on the PL, but that assumes that cogs are being treated in that way. So I would encourage you to kind of really sit down and think about is, is our cost of goods sold section and our accounting tool isolating those pass-through expenses properly? Yeah. And, and a rough rule of thumb that I, well, we used to use it was around you know six hundred thousand dollars per employee. So you know number of employees by six hundred thousand. That's the rough turnover you would do because someone told me they're a ten million dollar business, and yes, I'd, I quickly do the head count and say, well, no, actually they're not. I think they're a three or four because of pass through. Have you heard of that? A rough rule of thumb of what an employee? Yeah, we're usually looking at it in terms of AGI, and I mean, I want to be careful about revenue per FTE because I think it's a vanity metric. Um, yeah. because the reality is like your revenue per FTE needs to be a lot lower if you have a bunch of employees in the Philippines versus if yes. you have a bunch of employees in San Francisco, um, you might be doing a $200,000 uh, a month or $200,000 a year revenue per full-time employee in San Francisco. But if everybody costs 200 grand, then you're still not doing very well. Um, so 
generally the benchmark that I hear about, it's relative to agency gross income, not top line revenue, of course, because that pass-through can vary dramatically from one agency to another. That's part of the reason why we like to do that. It helps flatten the playing field and allows us to compare agencies more. Um, but usually you're, you're trying to aim for around that $200,000 plus per year per full-time employee. But again, I, I don't like setting a benchmark there because what's really important is actually more so the labor efficiency ratio. How many dollars do you earn for every dollar you spend on payroll? That's the more important thing, which we'll talk about here next when we talk about delivery margin. Yeah, right. ROI. So with that said, we have our AGI number. Now what we want to figure out is what does it cost us to earn that revenue? That's really our gross margin, our gross profit um, in more standard accounting terms. We call it delivery profit or delivery margin because accountants get mad at us because we get confused on terms. So that's what we're going to call it, delivery margin. So that's how much does it cost us to earn our AGI? And so in order to calculate that, what we need to isolate is all of our delivery costs. And generally that is payroll all of the payroll that you spend on people who work for clients. And there might be some people on the team that are split 50-50 between, let's say, sales and marketing and delivery, or maybe you as a founder are still having your hands in client projects. So do some payroll allocations and isolate how much of our payroll every month goes towards delivery, goes towards earning revenue for clients. And then usually you've got this bucket of kind of shared delivery expenses, which would be things like the tools and software and um, templates and stock footage libraries, et cetera, that your team needs. They're not just for one client, but they need them to do their job. So that's usually five to 6% of your AGI going towards uh, those shared delivery expenses. And then another 35 to 45% of AGI going towards your delivery payroll. And what you're trying to get to is 50% delivery margin or higher on your profit and loss statement. So essentially what that means is you want to spend no more than 50 cents to earn a dollar. If you have to spend more than 50 cents to earn a dollar on a consistent basis, you're not in a great position to be profitable as a business because there's just not going to be that much left over to pay for the office and the accounts and the lawyers, et cetera, and still have some profit left over at the end of the year. So that's a metric that almost nobody that I look at their P&Ls can actually see without doing some math or without breaking their payroll account open or breaking their software account open. But it's arguably the most important metric that you should be getting on your PL every time you look at it. Yeah, look, yeah, we, we used to watch that like a hawk. We had as a, you know, call it the indirect as a percentage of revenue in in corporate. And um, yeah, I think it's really important. And, you know, as my experience, not many people look at that number, as you said, but it's super important. Uh, what are some of the ways to bring down that you know the obvious one is to let go of team but you know that means the owner needs to do more and that doesn't work right but what are some other ways that you can bring down that um the in particular the, the payrolls percentage of of revenue there, there's essentially three levers um that you can pull and i'm going to talk about two of them as separate metrics as well so of course the first lever is actually decreasing the cost of the labor so um essentially there's there's two major levers that you can pull. The first is decreasing the amount of time that it takes to get something done, which theoretically means that same team can now do more work or earn more revenue because let's say it used to take you 20 hours to set up a template for a website. You found some automation, some tools, a nicer process. You were able to reuse some stuff. You get that down to 10. Well, theoretically that team can now do twice as many of those deliverables as they used to be able to. So that's one way is decreasing the amount of time it takes, therefore increasing the average billable rate, which is essentially a simple metric that we'll talk about in more depth that explains how much revenue does this section of the business earn for every hour that we spend on it. Yeah. The second way is to increase your utilization. So 
you're paying for most people, you're paying for 2,080 hours of their life every year on an employment contract. That's 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year. There's a certain amount of that that you're going to give back to them for holidays and vacation and paid time off, et cetera. What's left over basically is your inventory. And at the end of every day, any hour that was not used to earn revenue for the business is going sour on the shelf. And so increasing the amount of utilization of that time is another good way to make sure that you're, you're keeping those ratios healthy of payroll to, um, AGI. So those are kind of the first two levers to pay attention to is, can we spend less time getting the same work done? Therefore we have capacity for more. And can we deploy more of the time that we're buying from our team against things that get revenue in the door for the company or gets deliverables done for clients and therefore earns our revenue. And beyond those two things is actually decreasing the cost of every hour that you spend. And that could be by finding ways to have more junior staff do things that typically comes from refining your processes and dialing in your systems for how you do things so that they require less judgment and therefore less seniority, or starting to look at, you know, geo arbitrage opportunities, whether that be offshoring or nearshoring or uh, that kind of thing. So those are essentially the three ways that you can improve that relationship between what you spend and what you earn in a given time period. Yeah. And definitely like I used to be in bucket three. So I ran a an outsourcing business out of the, the Philippines. And, uh, you know, I always said most, most jobs have got 50% of admin in them, right? Or 50% of inefficiency. So how do you get rid of that 50% to, to uh, really make sure that the people are doing what they're really paid to do rather than do things that they're not, right? So that's a general rule. Uh, what about geographies though? So, you know, I know that um, we've got teams in both uh, South America, particularly Colombia, and also the Philippines, but what are some of the regions that you're seeing are becoming um, more desirable uh, for outsourcing? Yeah, I mean, obviously the big thing is the cost and there, there really are like very skilled talent pools in these areas and even Eastern Europe, still a big opportunity in that part of the world. Um, you know, it can be a little bit challenging with time zoning, depending on where you're based. Uh, obviously, if you're more uh, on the... Uh, the Australian side of the world, then um, Southeastern Asia and those kinds of places are like really accessible. The Philippines and Thailand and those kinds of places make a lot of sense for us in North America. South America is very, very convenient time zone to work in. So th that's the primary reason is it's just the cost is lower. And um, I know that like big four consulting companies now are building massive offshore teams and leveraging this geo arbitrage opportunity, especially for, again, work that doesn't require a ton of context or a ton of judgment. Therefore, um, language barriers and time zone barriers and perhaps experience gaps or, you know, different ways of doing things are not going to be prohibitive to that team being productive. Um, so generally that comes from having a more clearly defined process, more clearly defined a process is the less judgment is required to execute on the task. So this is generally a sign of maturity in a service offering. Once it's fairly stable and regimented and you can build type process, then that really unlocks the opportunity for you to start looking at geographical arbitrage to bring that cost per hour down. It, it can have a significant impact on your margins. Right. And, and we've, uh, sorry, is there any, any others before I ask a couple of other questions? Oh, go ahead. No. So, uh, now, the big one here is to get the labor efficiencies, the utilization, et cetera, is time, right? How do, how do you track people's time? And yeah. I know that you have got a great quote saying that, you know, you know how to track time without actually tracking time. So tell us about that because it, it's the elephant in the room, right? Like every, every right. agency owner always has this thing of, 
should I track get people to track their time or not? Because mm-hmm. you know the employees hate doing it, and the agency owners normally don't do it, right? So they're sort of sitting in in um in you know sort of like in a, in a difficult situation. So how yeah. how do we get around that? So from my perspective, yes, it, tracking time is extremely important. It, it would be like running a restaurant and not knowing what it costs you to make a dish. It would be insane to run a restaurant that way. And the same thing is true for an agency. If you don't know how much time goes into getting a certain type of thing done for the client, then you actually don't know what it's costing you. And that is also kind of insane. And so typically we think about the primary way of tracking time as being timesheets, and that's true. However, there are some business model adaptations that you can use to make time tracking far easier and actually centralize it around the one person in the agency that could probably get excited about it, which is your project manager. And there are examples of really big successful agencies that do it this way. Media Monks is probably the best example. This is an agency that scaled to thousands of people doing complex enterprise web development type projects. And they like to brag about how they don't track time, which is a lie. They do. They just don't use timesheets to do it. And the way that they achieve that is by using the resource plan as the source of truth for time. And the reason they're able to do that is because they have really low client dilution in their teams. They run what's called an abstracted time and materials model, or I I say that it's called that. I maybe invented that term. I don't know. That's what I call it. So abstracted (laughs) time materials, which is essentially a time and materials contract that's abstracted away from the hour. So the way that they might sell you an enterprise website development project is by saying something like, Hey, Paul, this project, it's very complex. It's very large. Um, For the deliverables that we've kind of outlined or for the features that you want, we're anticipating this is going to take somewhere between 20 and 26 sprints. A sprint is going to be two weeks long. And in that sprint, we're going to give you this cross-functional team that includes two developers, a half an architect, a designer, and a quarter of a strategist, and about a half of a project manager. And so based on that, you can tell that like, A given person is only ever going to be assigned to one, two, maybe three or four clients at a time. And so it's reasonable for a project manager to, during daily check-ins, just go, hey, anybody work late yesterday or work a lot less time than they expected to? And basically say, okay, Paul's on this client for four hours and this other client for four hours, and then just capture the small differences in what actually happens. That's reasonable when you have that little amount of complexity because you're not diluting your team across a lot of different clients and projects. So that makes resource plan-based time tracking feasible, which means the team's not tracking time. The project manager is doing it on their behalf by maintaining the resource plan. That is far more challenging to do, however, if you're in an environment where your team is jumping around across five, six, seven, eight, ten projects at a time. You know they're they're losing their day in fifteen-minute increments, hopping from one thing to another. That is a higher degree of complexity, and so usually in that case, you kind of do need to have your team fill out timesheets. But understand that if it's really, really, really important to you to avoid that then if you're able to structure your business in such a way where you're able to assign people to very small numbers of projects for long periods of time, then you can unlock this other way of doing it. Great. And we, we've talked, uh, one of my mentors once said, um, costs are finite, revenue is infinite. So, you know, we talked about revenue at the start, you know, pricing, right? I know that's the other elephant in the room. You know, how do I, how do, I do my pricing? Do I do time and material? Do I do it? You know, based on a fixed rate, do I do it based on return on investment? You know, once again, share some wisdom around uh, pricing for us. 
Yes. And this is a, somewhat of a controversial subject because um, there are a couple of things that are very in vogue right now. Value-based pricing being the main one, right? There are a lot of people that are very excited about value-based pricing. And I understand why. It is exciting, the prospect of completely detaching the price of your service offering from the cost of your service offering and anchoring it to something far more interesting being client value. Yes. However, even in my explanation of that concept, there is this inherent idea that we understand the costs. And if that's not true, then value-based pricing may not be the right methodology because if there's a lot of uncertainty around the scope or the cost of a deliverable, for example, if we're being asked by a client to develop um, custom software to land a rocket booster on a barge in the middle of the ocean on a new software development language that's not very well documented, it's almost impossible to scope that extra. It might not even be possible to actually achieve that outcome. And so for us to value-based price that, we need to price it such that we can absorb all the risk around that, which is probably a 200, 300, 1,000% contingency. I mean, what's the contingency on that? It's massive. Yes. And so the better way to handle that situation is to think about risk. So I have a quadrant for this, and I can certainly share a link to a video where you can see this visually, but I want you to imagine for a moment, we have a quadrant. On the horizontal axis, we have the level of risk in the engagement. High risk on the right-hand side, low risk on the left-hand side. And then on the vertical axis, we have the value. High value on the top, low value on the bottom. So let's first talk about risk. Risk comes down to how closely can we scope this thing? Can we get to within 10% of the hours it's going to take us, or do we really have no idea? Because a, it's a very nebulous or challenging deliverable, or there's, it's just inherently risky work, or B, because the scope isn't very well defined. Maybe the client doesn't really know what they want. Maybe the way that we need to solve this problem for the client is inherently iterative. We have to go through this kind of very, let's work together over a period of time to figure this out process. So that's risk. Yes. And then value is what is the value? And this is relative to the client. That usually comes down to two primary things. Number one, how commoditized is the service that we're offering? Simple example there is, are we selling graphic design? in which case we're competing against millions of people, or are we selling um, the ability to visually communicate complex B2B data systems via graphic design? Same service, but the niche allows us to you know, put ourselves in a smaller category, therefore have more scarcity and more um, expertise. And the second factor is the relative value to the client. So of course, if I'm doing conversion rate optimization on the website, apple.com gets a 1% that lift in conversions, it's hundreds of millions of dollars for them this year. My aunt Shirley, who sells leather uh, handmade bracelets on Etsy, she gets a 1% bump in conversions. It's not that significant. So the yes. scope of that work might be similar, but of course, aunt Shirley is not willing to pay me nearly as much as Apple is to get that kind of upside. So that's kind of price and value. So if we have a low value, high risk type of work, usually in that scenario, it actually makes a lot of sense to price based on time materials. Because yes. if we try to price it flat or value-based, we might end up spending way more time on this because there's a high risk to it. So what we're better off doing is saying, okay, what's an hourly rate that the client is comfortable with? Let's make sure that we have an hourly cost that gives us enough margin there to be profitable. And let's just really try to stay on top of billing the clients for all the hours that we work and have them share some risk with us because they're asking us to do high-risk work. If we have a high risk, high value type of work, then what we want to start doing is arbitraging the value. That's where we start to move to abstracted time materials, right? So instead of talking about an hourly cost, we talk about a sprint-based cost or a monthly-based cost, and we're essentially moving into leasing an expert team uh, against solving a business problem for the client. And we're trying to anchor that conversation more to the value to the client as opposed to the cost per hour. 
And there's lots of very successful enterprise software and website development companies that are running this model very yes. profitably. So we yes. get all the benefits of hourly pricing in that we share the risk with the client, but we still get to have some of that upside that's related to having a value conversation. When we move to the other side of the quadrant where we're doing lower risk work, if we have a low value, low risk work, that's typically where we want to get to flat pricing. And we're yes. using the flat price to create certainty for the client and make them have this perception of having good value that it's inexpensive, but we arbitrage the fact that it's low risk to be efficient. So this example here is Paul, you asked me to build you a website. I say, no problem, Paul, that'll be $500 an hour. You might tell me to go pound sand. Whereas if I tell you, you know what, Paul, I would love to build you a website. I'll build you a blazing fast site. It'll take me two weeks. It's proven to convert for SEO. It's, you know, it'll be amazing. I'll get it to you in two weeks and it's $5,000 flat fee. No questions asked. If you're not happy with it, I'll give you a full refund, whatever you go. Wow. That sounds like a great deal. I might still make 500 bucks an hour, yes. but it doesn't matter to you because you have certainty about the price. And so that's low value, low risk is let's think about arbitraging the risk and creating certainty so that the client feels that they're getting value. And then lastly, we have high value, low risk. That's when value-based pricing becomes appropriate because we have some certainty about the scope of the work. And the more certainty we have about not only the scope, but the process and output of the work, the more we can start to tie our service to value. So for example, if we know what the scope is with a high degree of certainty, but we're not hundred percent confident in the output of the process, and there's some risk around that, then we might say, you know, it's a flat fee of $100,000, Paul, because you said you're going to make a million dollars if we get you this outcome. So I think 10% of that outcome is fair. And then if you are even further down the certainty line, further down the low risk line in terms of, I know for sure after auditing Paul's website that we can get him this lift and create an extra $2 million, then you might say, we'll charge you a flat $50,000 plus we want 10% of every transaction above last year's numbers. So now you're getting tied into results. You can get even more upside because again, you have a low risk, not only in the scope, but also in the outcome that your service can provide. So the further down the low risk path you go and the higher up the value path you go, the more upside you can create for yourself. But again, fundamentally, it requires you to have some sense of uh, what the scope is at the very least in order for that to be a viable pricing model, in my opinion. Yeah, look, great explanation. And uh, we'll actually get that video for you. So it'll be in the in the uh, link to the to the show notes with everything else that Marcel mentioned. And uh, just quickly on uh, owner's uh, pricing. So let's say we are doing a you know material plus. I find that owner's tend to undervalue their time in the calculation versus their teams. Uh, is that something you see as well? And if you do, what's a good way to, to solve that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of interesting because the one way to look at it is to say, well, what is the market rate for this founder? And then you kind of apply that to all the time that they spend, but probably the better way to do it. And this is when you kind of have to start separating roles and tasks. But the way that I typically think about this is what is the hat that that founder is wearing at the time that they're working for a client? Are they wearing the project manager hat? Are they wearing the creative director hat? Are they wearing like the marketing automation strategist expertise hat? Like, because that is going to really dictate what would it cost to replace that time? What would it cost to buy it back? That's what we really should be modeling against. And so that's kind of how I think about it is what is the market rate to buy this kind of talent? And I would start with saying, what is the market rate to buy this talent freelance? 
so that you're creating some padding for yourself. And it also unlocks the opportunity for you to buy that time back earlier than when you get to a place where there's 40 hours a week worth of work to do. And now that's, now it's feasible for you to hire for that role. Um, and that's how I would be valuing the time of that. So if it's going to cost you $50 an hour to buy, take that hat off of yourself and put it onto somebody else, then model that at $50 an hour. And if you're doing very high level strategic work, like for myself, a lot of times when I'm in front of a client, that's $150 an hour work, at least for me to find a freelancer to do it. So that's kind of what I'm modeling the cost at. And then if I'm able to get enough volume to hire full-time and bring that cost down, that's great. I've priced myself for a little additional margin there, but I can source that talent earlier if it becomes something that I want to buy back. And I don't have to worry about changing my pricing or eating up all my margins because I've already assumed the cost of that when I set it up in the first place. Yeah. So look, we're recording this in uh, in June of 2022 for you. And at the moment, it's up, you know, everyone's talking about inflation, everyone's talking about wage pressures, et cetera. You know, any tips on uh, that? Oh, well, firstly, are you seeing it? Uh, flow through to agencies, Marcel, and uh, any any way that we can uh, you know, try to mitigate some of that? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, I've seen this uh, very, very much in the last two years, especially in the last 12 months. Uh, we've seen about an 8% increase across all of the clients that we've looked at and some of the industry reports that we've been a part of. And some specific areas where we're seeing like a more dramatic increase is around operations and project management. That was actually the fastest growing uh, salary sector over the last two years when we looked at specifically the Bureau of Digital Labor uh, Survey. And so people are making investments in operations, I think, because they understand that that's where the opportunity is. Of course, we can raise our prices and there's always a certain amount of appetite for that. I think most people could stand to raise their prices, but there is a, a place or a time when, you know, you can only go so high yes. Then you have to look for other levers to pull. And those levers are the efficiency levers that we talked about earlier. How do we spend less time doing the same thing? How do we maybe change our pricing model such that we're absorbing less risk or arbitraging more value? Um, and how do we uh, maybe find or increase our process so that we can find lower cost talent to buy back some of the time that is typically being done by a senior resource. And all of those things, they don't seem that significant, but yes. when you step back and model it, a couple percentage points in utilization increase, a couple uh, dollars in average billable rate can be the difference between losing money and making hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit for your business. It's really astounding when you start modeling this stuff, just how impactful some small changes can be when you have even just a little bit of scale. So I would really encourage everybody to kind of consume some of the resources that uh, you might find on our website or in our toolkit and look at these numbers for yourself and understand that, yeah, like two or 3% utilization doesn't sound that significant for a lot of our clients. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that multiply effect is so important, right? Like if you look at your key controllables in your PL and you look at small marginal gains and then you add those all up, like you said, that is where there's a significant uh, value. So look, um, it's you know it's it's been wonderful uh, hearing this. And the last question, just before we go into the deep dive, is you know you're here listening to this and you think, oh, yeah, I really want to do this. So from your perspective, Mar Marcel, what's what's the first step, right? So people know that you know they're under uh, under optimizing this part, right? What, what's yeah. the first logical step from here? Well, I'll first kind of do the, the biased one, but I think it actually is a great step is go to parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit 
and download our free agency profitable toolkit. And I've got four training videos in there, as well as a bunch of uh, templates and cheat sheets that you can use to actually start modeling some of this stuff for yourself and getting a handle on some of these numbers and actually going through some simple frameworks that I think will help you figure out how to set up your tools and your time tracking, your project management, so that it's easier to see this stuff going forward. So that honestly would be my first step, but assuming that for whatever reason you don't want to do that, I think the first step is, is going to your accountant and making sure that you can see your delivery margin every month. You're only getting 12 shots on goal if you do that every month, but that's better than zero shots on goal in terms of like really understanding and adjusting the earning efficiency of your business. I, I find a lot of people come to me and they're concerned about, they think they're spending too much on overhead and they're trying to, you know, they're stepping over dollars to pick up pennies, essentially trying to take their uh, bookkeeping costs from 300 to 200 a month or take a hundred dollar software and trade in for a $59 a month software. That's not where the opportunity is for you. I can promise you if that's where your head is at, the opportunity isn't taking your delivery margin from 30 or 40% where it probably is today up to 50 yes. or 60%. And it's not yes. as hard as you might think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, uh, great advice. So uh, you ready now to go into the uh, quick deep dive on some uh, sales it. questions? All right. So the first one is uh, for you. What's the sales habit that you do each and every day? Earned media, borrowing attention from people like yourself, Paul, by doing exactly this. I'm doing it right now. I'm marketing to all of you, but my thesis is my marketing should serve more people than our product ever does. And so this has been the thesis for me. I have a show, a podcast. I invite guests on. I borrow their audience that way. And then I come on their show. I borrow their audience that way. And I just thought, who's already got the attention that I want? How do I go partner with them to borrow it? And then, of course, we have this great, very relevant lead magnet, which is this toolkit that I'm asking you to go give me your email in exchange for. And you know, about 10% of people that download that toolkit at some point in time end up getting on a call to have a conversation about our consulting services. That has been my entire roadmap and it has worked extremely well. Brilliant. And uh, from a technology point of view, what's a key piece of technology or maybe a couple that you use to accelerate your sales for your business? Um, I'm going to let everybody in on a a secret. I shouldn't even really be sharing this, but um, this is probably one of the most ninja marketing tactics I've ever used. I'm not a big tactics guy, but this was, I, I was like a kid in a candy shop when we figured this out. If you download the toolkit and you have more than eight employees, you will likely receive a video. And now there's somebody on my team that's doing it, but that video comes from Marcel Petipa. But the secret here is that I haven't shot one of these videos in six months. We're using a tool called Descript, which is a podcast and video editing tool, but it has this cool feature called overdub, where if you feed it enough of your voice, it creates an AI version of your voice. And the purpose of that, Paul, is so that if I have, if I say something wrong during the podcast, I can go into the transcript and erase the word that I said wrong and type in the word that I wanted to say, and it will make it sound like I actually said that during the show using the AI version of my voice. Well, if you know anything about cold email, you know that you can write a script that has a couple of merge fields. We do the same thing in, in those videos that we send to clients where we go, hey, I looked at your, um, you know, your team and your website. It looks like you have about 15 employees. These are the numbers that you should have achieved in the last 12 months in terms of profit and revenue, et cetera. And I shot that video once. Those merge fields are the company name and the number of employees and the values. And I have somebody on my team now that can send videos from me to all of our clients with this information and I don't ever have to shoot these again. So that Descript, really incredible, powerful tool, one that, um, you know, if you want to get into some really advanced stuff, you can use for that, but it's been transformational. That combined with Loom, very, very cool. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, what about for you? Uh, that, 
assuming is one of them, but anything else that you're doing to uh, get leads? And obviously you talked about podcast and podcast guesting. Is there anything else that uh, is a key source of leads for you? Um, I mean, honestly, my one-two punch is this earned media approach and then SEO, because typically when I get on a podcast or I go into a coaching group or I do some kind of webinar or public speaking event on a virtual summit, we get backlinks. And what's the hardest part about SEO? It's getting backlinks. So what we started with was about a year of focus on earned media. That really helped us get this nice uh, flow of backlinks and domain authority coming in. And now SEO is really, really easy because it's basically just on-page optimization. That's the easy stuff. You can hire somebody very, very cheaply to do that. And now SEO has kind of really been picking up in a nice way. So that stack, I really like go borrow attention. You get results in the short term, but then the long-term effect is you get this evergreen flow of leads and all these backlinks that then make SEO much faster and much more cost-effective than it otherwise would have been if you were trying to source all these backlinks from the ground up. Brilliant. And just a very quick question on that. What's the split how do you think it's going to play out now that we're sort of, you know, living more with COVID? Do you think it's going to be a 50-50 in-person virtual or what? how do you see the mix sort of playing out with events? In, with events? Mm. Right now, I'm seeing the pendulum swing far more towards in-person because I think everyone's zoomed out from the last two years. And then I think it'll settle, you know, kind of back right where it was before COVID. But I think that's going to take a year or two. Right now, I feel like people are itching to get out. I personally, um, you know, I love doing virtual stuff because I can show up here in in the comfort of my living room. But I would love to get back on stages at in-person events. I've had a chance to do that a couple of times this year. So I think for the next 12 months or so, you're going to see people really indexing towards in-person events and uh, that human connection again. Yeah, great. So the last question is a big one. That's why I leave it to the end. What's one action we can take, or more importantly, you can take to 10x your sales? Never skip a day. Um, That's got to be the biggest thing that kills uh, momentum in every agency that I've seen that struggle with sales is it breaks when somebody gets busy, when somebody's sick, when whatever. Um, It needs to happen every day, even if it's just a little bit. no days off from whatever activity you're doing. And I think you can pick the wrong strategy and do it poorly, but if you do it every day, you'll still be okay. Um, So I think it's the consistency and never missing a day and having that attitude when you set it up. Brilliant. Well, we'll have the links to everything, as I said, but don't forget it's uh, paraketo.com forward slash toolkit for that amazing agency profit profitability toolkit. And also if you fill it out, you'll get that video and you'll see exactly what it's like from a Descript point of view. But uh, Marcel, it's been uh, fantastic having you on the show and uh, really enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. And uh, thanks for sharing today. Thanks, Paul. It was a pleasure. I really loved that interview with uh, Marcel. He could have gone for so much longer. I love the fact that he talked about value-based pricing in that matrix, which we will have in the index uh, oh, sorry, in the show notes for you, and also the delivery margin and how important that is. So, you know, if you're going to take one action out of this podcast, that's the one I'd be taking, but it's up to you which one you're going to take. But just take one. There's lots of information, I know, and, you know, the information that you did get. Why don't you share just one thing that you learned? Just put it on LinkedIn and uh, at mention um, Marcel. He'd love that. And also don't forget that free toolkit. So go to paraketo.com forward slash toolkit. It'll be in the notes on the app you're listening to. And it'll also be in the show notes, episode number 407. And uh, also, uh, as I said, 
you know, share it with people. So I said share it on LinkedIn, but why not share it with others in your community that you know would get a lot of value? Because this is a, a topic that I think not many people talk about, but it's one that is really needed. And, you know, especially with the margin growth and the wage um, squeeze at the moment for you guys, or in particular for you, we can, um, you can definitely help. Um, check out our solo shows as well. And also don't forget our free community uh, for cloud consultants at cloudconsultantscollective.com. Next week's guest is Harry Ballas Ford. He's, uh, he's picked a vertical. It's a cannabis industry. And he's going to talk about why he's picked a vertical, how you could do it, and also how he's uh, really scaling his cloud consulting business in that vertical. As always, please take action to accelerate your sales. I'm fired up after today's episode. What about you? But hey, before you go, learning is just one piece of the puzzle. Now it's time to put today's strategy into action. Head over now to today's show page at paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash podcast and share how you'll put it into action. Be sure to head over to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review the show. Tell me what your favorite episode is. And don't wait one minute more to gain access to your pulse check at paulhigginsmentoring.com. This could be the difference between struggling to get more leads and making this next quarter your best one yet.